Thank you both. We have gathered to worship uh, the living God. So you can see by the flowers, we're uh, one day after the funeral for um, Brianna Evenhouse. That was yesterday. Uh, we're thankful for this reminder of the hope we had and celebrated yesterday in Christ. But here we are gathered uh, to worship. The call to worship is taken from Psalm 46. Uh, it's, I've set it up as a responsive reading, so as I read, if you would respond, I'll begin. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Let us stand and sing together, one heart, one voice, crown him with many crowns. Amen. And have a seat if you would. Well, each Sunday as we gather, it's my joy to welcome those of you on site as we gather to worship the Lord, uh, rest in the love and word that he's given us, but also those online as we are able to take this moment and make it available live stream or recorded. I continue to be amazed at how God uses that. We were able to extend yesterday's funeral uh, through live stream, and I got a uh, email later in the afternoon from Pastor Heidi DeYoung, who is able to be a part of things even as she uh, serves in Canada, having been here at one point. So fascinating things. Um, I've thought about perhaps adding a subtitle to our worship service called Worship of the Living God and Contest to See What Pastor Bill Forgot. Uh, we're navigating all kind of things that will be different. I'm going to be also preaching at Fusion this morning, we discovered. Um, just uh, everything's fine in the Wernerland family. They just need to uh, navigate things with quarantine. Everybody's feeling pretty well. So I'll preach there. Darwin, Pastor Darwin, will continue with my Q&A after the service. So we're going to get that going and carry it on. He'll be able to talk some about the sermon and some of the other things that uh, are doing. Darwin is actually a delegate to this summer's General Synod. 
So great time to interact there. Um, we'll have our coffee fellowship and anything else that I forget in that time. Uh, I think we've got some slides for some things that I want people to know. Uh, an upcoming potluck, uh, well, our discussion group, there we go. Um, Wednesday nights, we're talking through a book that goes with our sermon series. Uh, this is also available online two days a week and looking for ways to encourage relationship and reflection together. Now let's see what's next on the slides. There we go. Oh, great escape. Our day camp summer ministry is already preparing and hiring. And then did I add anything else this week? Ah, if you will text the word connect to that phone number, it will give you a link to a form and you can get added to our uh, celebration inform email, um, make a request of me, just whatever would be good. It's a way for us to connect through the course of the week. Um, oh, and there's the potluck. I thought there were going to be th some more things in there. February 15th, that's a Tuesday. Uh, those of you who aren't already pre-indisposed with things like work, uh, feel free to come and we'll have a potluck and gathering. And then this was, oh, this is C.S. Lewis. I'm reading through the book Problem of Pain with a a uh, friend uh, by C.S. Lewis, and it has been a wonderful experience. So from time to time, you will see quotations from that book. Sharp fella, I'm thankful to spend time with C.S. Lewis and this friend. Shall I try and read that? Nope. Let's go to the Heidelberg Catechism. <laughs> Let's go to the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, life is good, you know, we are together. Heidelberg Catechism question 21. Um, begins with this question, what is true faith? And your response, true faith is, next slide, there we go, together. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others, but me also. Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation, these are the gifts of sheer grace granted slowly by Christ's merit. Take a moment and reflect. We'll have music and then we'll join them as we sing together.
words. Amen, and have a seat if you would, please. I'm asking Hardaway Student Ministries leader, Nate DeWitt, to come and let us know what God is up to in a ministry that we're invested and committed to. Nate. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Thanks, everybody, for having me today. Once again, my name is Nate DeWitt. I'm the youth pastor here at Hardaway. It is an honor and a privilege to work with the students here. I just want you guys to know how grateful we are for the continued support, financially, prayers, all of those things. It's a blessing to work here with students at Heart Awake. I'm a part of a lot of different youth ministry forums and groups and stuff online, and not everybody has it as good as we have it here. So thank you very, very much. I just want to share a quick story with you guys about some of the cool things that are happening here at Heart Awake with our youth ministry programming. Um, we've been talking a lot in the last year or so about leadership with our students, uh, about the idea of having a faith that you're not always expecting to necessarily be fed all the time, but growing your faith to a point where you are ready to help feed into other people's faiths. And it was uh, after youth group, in our high school youth group, a couple of weeks ago, I had a student come up to me. Um, we were sitting down having a, having a snack after youth group, and he said, Nate, I got I to gotta talk to you about something real quick. I said, okay, well, you know, what's up? And he said, well, I got this thing on my mind, and I've kind of been putting it off, but I really think that I, I need to try something. I said, all right, well, you know, what, what can I do for you? How can I help? He said, well, I think I kind of want to get up in front of youth group and, like, share a message with the rest of the group. And I'm thinking, wow, a high school student that voluntarily wants to jump up and publicly speak in front of a group is a big deal to begin with. But I said, okay, you know, let, let's, make, let's work it out. Let's make it work. He said, well, how about next week? And I said, okay, that's quick. But, yeah, we can do that. What can I do for you? How can I help? Um, and he said, well, I, you know, I think maybe just I'll just do it. And started thinking, all right, this, you know, we'll see how it goes. But anyway, we get to next week, and, and uh, we go through our youth group stuff and um, our games and things to begin the, the, the evening. And, and we get to the point where it's time for this student to get up and speak. And he jumps up, and he talks about uh, the story with Jesus calming the storm and how it was a big deal, for a message he had heard not that long ago, and he really wanted to share that with other students. And he's, he's crushing it. He's knocking it out of the park. He's doing a great job. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, uh-oh, I'm going to lose my job. This guy's going to take my job pretty quick. No, but anyway, he did a fantastic job. And shortly after that, uh, you know, a few days after that, I started getting emails from different parents and other students and other people that um, were a part of that night who were just so inspired and so blessed by what the student did and how they, how they were really excited to have one of their peers get up there uh, and share a message like that. So that's just a quick story about some of the cool things that are happening here. Uh, again, I'm so thankful and grateful to be able to work with the students here. Again, thankful here for your, your prayers, your support. Um, it's, it's a really cool thing that we've got going on across the parking lot, and um, it's not lost on us that a lot of that is due to the support from you guys. So thank you for that. Um, and if you would, let's pray to keep the service going. Lord, thank you. Uh, Thank you for the church. Thank you for the people that attend here. Thank you for the students, Lord. Um, we have such a great group of kids and so many of them that are willing to jump up and help and do things. Uh, thankful for the group of students that were willing to help with the GEMS and the cadets group last week, Wednesday, um, and to, to help just do things throughout our church to make a difference, Lord, and in the community around. 
Lord, thank you for the parents of those students and the grandparents of those students that are uh, tirelessly giving of themselves to help them succeed and to help grow their faith. Lord, thank you for the resources that we have here at Heart Awake uh, and the ways in which um, we can use those resources to bless not only our students, but the rest of the community around us as well. Lord, thank you for being a God of power, of beauty, of patience, of love, and of healing. There's so many in our community right now that, uh, that are hurting in so many different ways. Uh, but thank you for being a God that is there for us and a God that helps us to be there for each other. Lord, we're sorry for those opportunities when we don't represent you well. Uh, we're sorry for the wrongs that we do. We're sorry for the rights we choose not to do. But Lord, grant us all that we need to be better so that we might help other leaders and to help to build leaders, to help build relationships with you. Lord, we ask for wisdom in a complicated world. There's so much going on um, in so many different ways to try to navigate different things. We just pray for the wisdom to do it in a way that blesses those around us and that brings people closer to you. Lord, we ask that you grant us eyes to see opportunities uh, to work for you in this world. We ask for the courage to act on those opportunities. And Lord, we ask for patience when those opportunities don't come as easily as we would hope. And lastly, again, Lord, we ask for comfort for those in our community that are dealing with illness and death and pain and hurt and all of those things that are clearly not the way you intentionally, purposely designed things to begin with. Lord, we love you and thank you for being a God that we can turn to. And as we continue to pray, Lord, let's join in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Nate, thank you. You can get a sense of one of the reasons I love being a part of the team, getting to serve with Heart Awake. And it's also an important moment when you, when we pray together on a Sunday for our student ministries, that's what I'm talking about. All right. And you hear me talk as well that ministry is not about me or the pastor. It's about God at work, certainly through me. I'm glad to do my part, but at work through every one of us, age, uh, gender, none of these things set us apart from God using us in unique and, and powerful ways. So very, very thankful for that and glad you had a chance to um, uh, hear Nate and be a part of things in that way. We're working through a sermon series, The Scandal of Grace, and our focus here is to dig into several of the parables and kind of try to move through our, our memories of them and dig into the, what the text says and how challenging that can be. This morning, we're looking at one that's pretty familiar. This term, Good Samaritan, is still pretty widely known in our culture now. And the idea sort of behind this story, but I'm going to try to dig back to that time and see it. So I'll ask the follow through on the scripture reading. I'll read, you follow through beginning at Luke chapter 10. Now, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus said, what was written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, the legal expert, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, it didn't stop. The next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, the man said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, and you can picture Jesus looking into the eyes of the, a Jewish expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Listen to this. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. We'll dig into that change. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that in a remarkable way, a Greek physician named Luke would have checked with the eyewitnesses and people who were there, and they would have remembered and recorded this story. And Luke's gospel was carefully preserved across centuries so that now we can open it up and translate it and ponder it. And in a remarkable way, we are hearing what Jesus said one day to an expert in the Jewish law with a crowd around him. As we join that crowd, Holy Spirit, uh, make your word life to us. Fill us with uh, light that we might see light. Give us hearts to be responsive, changed, obedient, all those things. Uh, make yourself known to us. Be present in this moment. Thank you that your grace and your love for your people this day is bigger even than my confusion and brokenness and sin. So we open our hearts with thankfulness, Lord Jesus, and we give you praise in all that you have. Guide us this day, for we pray in your mighty name. Amen. We see in this story, it begins in a historical setting, Jesus encounters a lawyer, an expert in the Jewish law, which was not only their civil law, but their religious law and their understanding where they gathered their knowledge and understanding of God. It was his promises. And Luke is very clear. This lawyer stood up with an intent. He didn't so much have a question to get an answer as he asked a question to give a test. You've perhaps run into that. You know somebody isn't trying to gather new information. They just want to see what you think. How does it compare? How does it stand? And so Luke begins, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Now, it's another sermon, but there's five times in the Gospels that someone comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom or to inherit life or this or that? What must I do? How does Jesus respond to such a question? Where does Jesus go? Well, Jesus looks to the law. He turns to the Old Testament that's what we call it, and particularly to the first five books, the books written by Moses. And he asked the lawyer, what was written in the law? How do you read it? Notice, and this is so like Jesus, isn't it? Jesus has turned the tables. What was a question to Jesus to see how he would say it and how it would add up with him is now a question to this lawyer. And the lawyer answers Jesus' question. And he does it by quoting Scripture. Jesus looks to the law, says, how do you read it? And this lawyer responds from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. He's just quoting the books of Moses. The second statement, Leviticus 19.18, I'm sure all of you in your reading of the Scripture from beginning to end each year when you're in Leviticus, don't we skip over Leviticus? The lawyer didn't, and this is where the lawyer had this. It's Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. That's in 
the Hebrew Bible, the books of Moses, the Old Testament. And what this is, is you'd call it the standard, orthodox, accepted, religious answer, the summary of what the law said. Love God, love neighbor. Jesus would reiterate it, but the rabbis had been affirming it all along. I want you to notice something, though. The lawyer comes with a question, what must I do? Jesus always looks at the Old Testament from a different perspective. Remember in Luke 24, 27, Jesus says, or Luke describes Jesus, and beginning with Moses, that would be Deuteronomy and Leviticus, beginning with Moses and as well as all the prophets, Jesus explained to his disciples on the road to Emmaus what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. Friends, I want to tell you, from Genesis to Malachi, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is not about what you should do. It's about who Jesus is. And I want to tell you, if you start down the road reading the books of Moses or the Psalms with this question, what should I do? You're going to head down one road. But if you go to these books and say, what does this tell me about Jesus and the good news of his life, death, and resurrection? You'll begin to see light and hear in fresh new ways. Jesus said Moses was writing about him. The lawyer starts off, you'll see this change in him soon, by thinking, what must I do? The first step to understanding what the Scripture teaches is to realize it's not about me. It's about God's work and His gospel. So, what started with a question for Jesus gets turned around to a question for the lawyer. Fortunately, the lawyer passes the test. He has the right answer. For you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, you may not pick it up, but there had to have been this pregnant, oh. And so the lawyer responds. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? I recognize that response because I see it in my heart all the time. Oh, that's what's expected? Well, let me try to narrow down what's expected to something that works for me. That's what the lawyer's doing there. And in response, Jesus steps out of the didactic, the teaching, and he tells a story, spins a yarn, and you've heard it. There are folks leaving Jerusalem, the city where the temple is, where the holy sacrifices are, and they're headed out of town down the mountain to Jericho. And this is a very dangerous road. I have a friend, Pastor Randy Brown, who's an urban pastor with my denomination in some tough neighborhoods in Detroit. And when we lived in Mount Pleasant, we would often take our vacation Bible school down there and help their church by putting that on and uh, doing ministry with the kids in their neighborhood. I remember visiting down there with Randy, planning that, and we got in his car to drive around the neighborhood. First thing you notice, because it wakes you up and scares you to death, Randy never stopped at stop signs. And after about four close encounters, and we're blowing through stop signs, I said, Randy, are you trying to kill me? He said, no, I'm trying to keep you alive. In this neighborhood, you don't stop at stop signs. There's risk. And I remember thinking, whoa. That's what the Jericho Road was like. It was not the place he stopped. Because if you were to stop, you would expose yourself to physical danger. There were robbers and, and thieves. It was a rocky, lonely road with switchbacks. It was great for ambushes. This man gets ambushed in the story. He's beaten up, robbed, and left for dead. Notice, and we'll just pass this. In John 10.10, 10, out of the lips of Jesus, he says, the enemy comes to rob, kill, and destroy. That's the work of the devil. And that's exactly what these people in the story do to the man. 
It's the work of a spiritual enemy to destroy life, to rob and to kill. Well, so here's this man beaten, you know the story. Very quickly, two religious professionals, we'll just leave it at that, priest and a Levite, but it could have been a Presbyterian and a Methodist. They come down the road and pass by on the other side. We're not exactly sure why, but there are lots of easy, reasonable guesses. Why would I pass by in that circumstance? Well, like I said, I don't want the same thing happening to me. It would be costly to be of help. Perhaps I have a schedule to keep. That's one of the ways I ignore people. I keep my life busy. They were Jewish Levites and priests, so they would have had cleanliness laws to be aware of. There could be many reasons, and that's one of the things I love about the Scripture. Sometimes it describes a situation, but it leaves room. I call it divine because it is divine. It's inspired, but it's divine ambiguity. There's room for not only that priest and that Levite to have their sin, but there's room for me to have my sin in the story. Why do I pass by those whom the enemy seeks to destroy? Well, so those guys pass by, but then comes a Samaritan, and he's considered by everybody in the crowd that Jesus is talking to as a hated outcast. By all the Jews that Jesus is talking to, there's centuries of hatred and animosity. And this is where we, as we read it, come across a problem. Because if I were to say, oh, you're such a good Samaritan, you'd say, oh, thank you. Good Samaritan is kind of a, a nice term in terms of Christendom. Back in the day when I was playing music, I was in a band that hired in for a couple of years, actually, at various, they were called Good Samaritan Conventions. There was this club, it seemed to be mostly older folks with recreational vehicles the Good Sam Club or something. They were nice people. And they would drive around, have conventions. Maybe they stopped along the way and helped people, you know, change their tires or whatever. We liked them. They were great folks. They always paid us what they said they would. They applauded from time to time and never once did they throw beer bottles or trash at us. These were nice people. They were clearly three steps above who we usually played for. But in the minute those good people become my picture of the Good Samaritan, it's the minute that I misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. The Good Samaritan would not have been allowed into a Jewish Good Sam club. Isn't that an irony? You see, Good Samaritan would have been an offensive oxymoron. What do I mean by that? An oxymoron is something, a statement that's really a contradiction. Here's my favorite tax simplification. <laughs> if you heard that they had just passed a thousand new pages of legislation for tax simplification, what would you do? You'd get ready to get more complex tax law. Oxymoron. Offensive. It's something that trips your inner anger. It bothers you. I was thinking with people all week how to try to get a taste for that. Imagine if you were a big donor alumni at, oh, University of Michigan or Michigan State. And so they gathered you for the athletic program fundraiser gala event. And there you are with all your alumni, well known as a big donor, and they have a special speaker that night. Let's just consider, who, who was the football coach for Ohio State, Urban Meyer? Wrong guy, wrong place. Another picture, you're in Brooklyn, walking by the fire station, is an ultra-Orthodox Jewish rabbi. He's got his scrolls and, you know, the curls and the black coat, and he's a heart attack right there in front of the fire station in Brooklyn. And out of the crowd pops a guy who says, oh, at my Al-Qaeda bomb training, they told us, gave, taught us CPR. I'll save him. Doesn't fit. There's got to be an offense. It's got to be an oxymoron. It's like pulling your fingernails down the board. Good Samaritan, not nice people. Hated people doing something that's totally surprising. Yeah, the two religious professionals pass by, but this good Samaritan, 
stops and he does the unthinkable. He sees, he changes his plans. He's moved by compassion. He relocates to get close to the wounded man. He bandages his wounds. You can't do that without touching him. He applies the medicine of the time, the wine and the oil. He's inconveniencing himself by putting the man on his donkey so he has to walk. He brings him to the inn. He's just blown up his schedule. And he takes care of the man. He even invests some of his own money in the man's recovery. Would have probably taken a good 24 hours that he lost. The money, the time, the risk. And you know what happens? When that man, that Samaritan man gets back on the road and starts again, what would you find on the Jericho Road about half a mile down? Another one. Another man beaten. And another mile after that, what would you find? Another one robbed, killed, and destroyed. I want to tell you, not only is he at risk, not only is it going to blow up his schedule, but it never ends. The Samaritan is being asked to do the impossible. That's what Jesus is saying to the lawyer. Look at this man. He does the impossible. No reasonable person would think of doing that. We'd have a thousand excuses. Let me poke the tiger here, friends. Where we were in Fredericksburg, there were three particular turns on the main thoroughfare that led up to the interstate. And it was a great place for people to panhandle. You'd see signs, pregnant, can you help? Veteran, can you help? Wounded, injured, whatever it might be. What do you do in your car when you come up to those situations? It'll be inconvenient. There'll be a different guy there tomorrow. It'll never end. Now, we're polite. We think if I gave him money, he'd probably spend it on alcohol. What is Jesus pointing to? Do the impossible that will never end. And he challenges the lawyer. He says, which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? Again, before we look at that answer, think about what Jesus has just described. Jesus is describing a man who's willing to do the impossible. I know we always like to kind of reduce it to what's reasonable and safe and doable. But Jesus hadn't put any of those boundaries there. Just do the impossible. That would be like telling the lawyer, go and be hated like a Samaritan. It'd be like telling him, care for those who despise you. Turn it around. What would you do with the Al-Qaeda person you bumped into? Put yourself in harm's way. Expose yourself to time and finances, your losses. Jesus is telling this man, just do the impossible. And to his credit, this Jewish expert in the law begins to realize that Jesus is not talking about a checklist of behaviors. Give him some money up to that limit. Invest some time in him up to that limit. Inconvenience yourself up to that limit. And then you will have been a good neighbor. The man does and does and does in a situation that you know will repeat and repeat and repeat. But the lawyer realizes it's not about behaviors because he says to Jesus, the one who had mercy on him. I'm guessing, it's a reasonable guess, that that lawyer remembers the prophet Hosea 6.6, who's in the voice of the Lord says, for I, the Lord, desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Being a neighbor is not a checklist of behaviors. It's a heart state of mercy. It's a heart state that doesn't count the cost, but that actively does the impossible. 
So the lawyer here, don't miss this, is on a journey. He starts with a question, like Jesus often does. He turns that question around, and now he's got to move past this idea of being a neighbor. Fulfilling the law is a checklist of behaviors. Showing mercy is an issue of the heart. He's got to think about more than that. Friends, I want to tell you something, and I've seen this as I've had to learn how to navigate the pathways of my own heart. If I think faithfulness to God is a list of behaviors, I'm going to work kind of hard to get those behaviors as small and as manageable and as undemanding as possible. But when I began to realize that the power of the gospel is not about determining my behaviors, it's about changing the source of my behaviors, my heart, I began to realize, uh uh-oh, this Jesus guy has raised the bar. It's not just about have you committed adultery, it's about what goes in your mind. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? It's not just about murder, it's about calling someone Racha, fool. Goodness gracious, the lawyer is on a journey. Now, in our sermon resources, you should get an email each day that has links, each Sunday, that has links to um, the service live streams and also a sermon resources blog. On the sermon resources blog, the three of us put uh, this week a link that will get you to a sermon clip from Dr. Martin Luther King, two days before he was assassinated, he's preaching to people from this very passage. And it's a brilliant sermon. You're going to say, Pastor Bill, he did it in five minutes. Why are you still talking? But Dr. King touches this very thing. It's brilliant biblically, and it's marvelous sermon. Something happens in the heart of the Samaritan that didn't happen in the heart of the Levite or the priest. The Samaritan changed the question, not what happens to me if I help, but what happens to him if I do not. There's a fascinating description of the heart change between the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan. It's not about what happens if, if, if I help. Oh, there'll always be another one. Oh, they might waste the money they give them. Oh, it'll absorb my time. Oh, I'll be late for this. It's focused on the other. What happens to him if I don't? Friends, I want to tell you, the lawyer is now faced realizing that Jesus, when he says, go and do likewise, is saying this, go do the impossible. Except, and here's the gospel. In that very crowd that day, look around, survey them in your mind's eye. There is one who would do the impossible. There is one who would risk being hated. There is one who would care for those who despised him. There was one who would put himself in harm's way, who would expose himself to loss of everything that he had, glory, time, riches of all sorts. Who is that one who would do the impossible? The Lord Jesus Christ. Want to do what it takes to be saved? Just be like Jesus. Have a nice day. Jesus points to the lawyer and says, do like this. I'm calling you to the impossible. Not so the man will go away knowing what he should do, but asking, where shall I look for a Savior? I was meditating through Isaiah, and the 55th chapter is Isaiah's prophetic picture into the clouds of the future, centuries to come. He sees the Messiah, and he realizes he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. That's Jesus. Looks like a Samaritan to us, but that one despised. Friends, I want to ask you, when you begin to see that the good Samaritan is Jesus, not Jesus, 
simply your model for behavior, you begin to realize that there is one who did the impossible, the Lord Jesus. And then you begin to ask, where is my place in the story? Because if the Good Samaritan is not me and my good Sam Club members, then am I the dying man or am I the Levite priest? Do I recognize my brokenness and my need for someone to come along who can do the impossible? Or am I just sticking with the law as I can manage it and moving on? Friends, I want to tell you, there is one who did the impossible. And he doesn't tell us, now you go and do the impossible. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, follow me, and he will give us authority. He will guide us. He will be the good shepherd who leads us step by step. In Galatians 5.22, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, not the evidence of your behaviors or works. He says, I will dwell within you by the power of the Holy Spirit and live a different life through you. I want to tell you something. Not every need you come to is your calling in Christ. There are times that I too just pass by the panhandler. But I've got to always ask myself, what's going on, the mercy in my heart? Remember, Jesus said, go and make disciples. But he also said in that very statement, I will be with you. In this story, the Good Samaritan, we see a call to do the impossible, and only Jesus does it. Jesus then calls us to follow him, empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, that's the good news. There is one who did the impossible, and he's promised us that he will dwell within us. The indwelling spirit that enables us to follow the Savior, not be the Savior of ourself or of others. How many people are wrestling and trying to be good enough when Jesus has offered, it is finished. Friends, there is one who did the impossible and he calls us to follow in his footsteps to let his life move in and through us. We are that dying man on the road to Jericho. But there is one who reached out to us, and now he says, come and follow. You know, one of the things I've had to learn in ministry over the years is the limits of what I can do. God has equipped me, and he calls me to care for the wounded, but it is Jesus who cares by fixing the problem. The work of his Holy Spirit leading and guiding his people, whether it's wounds on the surface or transformation at the center. This is the vision for God that he has for us in this story. He calls us to this. We can care for the wounded and we're called to that, but we realize that it's Jesus who cares by fixing the deep problem and he begins with us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. So often we're out of good hearts, trying to figure out what to do. Thank you that you've called us not simply to manage behaviors, but to surrender to you, to follow you, to live out of your indwelling power, to respond to the voice of our good shepherd. And so out of that, Father, thank you that we don't carry the weight of being the world's savior, only you could do that, but we do respond to your saving of us by following you wherever you would take us. Father, I pray that in Ottawa County, through what your work and Heart of Wake Ministries, that there would not be a person safe and warm who's saying no to your call that you would lead us to places we would not otherwise go, that though every need is not ours to meet, you will call us and empower us to meet particular needs as part of your ministry of redemption in a broken world. Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus came to us 
in our brokenness by the side of the bloody path. And he did the impossible. For such a God who would love us in that way, we will follow. Thank you for your good work through your people. These things we uh, pray and we make our prayer in the name of Jesus, our great and mighty Savior. And all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Let's close with a hymn that reflects on this truth. All hail the power of Jesus' name. received the benediction, a blessing from Paul's letter to the Roman church. He writes this, and now to him, the one who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been known to, made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.